Future of Finance podcast, where finance finds its future. Hello, I'm Dominic Hobson, co-founder of Future of Finance. My guest today is Tim Mohin, Executive Vice President and Chief Sustainability Officer at Persephone, a venture-backed software-as-a-service company that helps companies monitor and report their ESG performance and helps investors to monitor and report the ESG performance of the companies they own. Importantly, prior to joining Persephone, Tim was the CEO of the Global Reporting Initiative, GRI, the world's largest ESG reporting standard. So nobody is more familiar with the problems of data quality and data methodologies in measuring ESG compliance than Tim. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Dominic. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. Could we start at the most obvious point, which is the fact that every company on the planet seems to publish a, an ESG report. And I've looked at some of these myself, and I wonder how much of the data inside those reports is actually real, meaningful, useful data, and how much of it is just sort of PR guff. Yeah, it's a great way to start off the conversation, Dominic. Um, just to step back a little bit, uh, I've been involved in this area for hmm, 35 years before we had the word sustainability and uh, actually saw this um, uh, proliferation of reporting, if you will, spring up. And, and the, the roots of it are really important to understand because it started from a place of trying to do the right thing, being a responsible corporate citizen and proving that out through these disclosures is really the root of why so many companies are reporting this. What brings us here to this moment today is that that is now crossed over from the arena of doing good to uh, financially material disclosures. And that's where I think some of the tension has come in. So you're absolutely right to say that a lot of the reporting that's done today is in fact um, got a little bit of a marketing spin on it. Does that make it necessarily bad? Well, you know, there are different opinions on that. Uh, clearly though, companies have been uh, working very hard to do the best that they can on a voluntary basis to try and make the world better, to improve their overall reputation. I think the problem that we're facing now is as investors increasingly rely upon this data, what are the roots of that data? Is it accountable? Is it, is it assured? Is it reliable for investors? That's the new world that we're entering into today. And the last thing I'll say is, you know, the current statistics are that 90%, 90%, nine out of 10 companies on the S&P 500 are now reporting some form of sustainability information. And one third of all global assets under management have some sort of ESG claim associated with them. So to say that this is uh, prolific, I think is an understatement. <clears throat> I'm glad you brought up the question about a third of assets under management being ESG compliant in some way. It seems to me that virtually every manager that I talk to seems to have some kind of ESG fund uh, uh, underway. And I, that prompts the question there, the consumers, obviously, of this um, ESG data, which, which corporations are producing, but how many of those ESG compliant funds, fund managers are actually doing the job properly? And how many of them are, are engaging in their own version of, of greenwash, particularly if the, the quality of the data from the underlying investments isn't particularly good? I think this is where we really need to drill in because you know the, the, there are so many claims that various funds various financial products are compliant with ESNG. First, you have to ask yourself, what is ESNG? Okay, so when I was chief executive of GRI, we had 34, 34 topic specific standards. 
and they range all over the map from environmental climate change to social things like forced labor, uh, diversity, uh, worker health and safety. All of these things are included in this very broad remit we call ESG. And so to call it one thing is actually quite difficult because it's many, many different things. But the root of your question gets to the point of accountability. Uh, without some sort of accountability, you can say almost anything is related to ESG because it is so very, very broad. Uh, so I think the time has long passed that the uh, purveyors of ESG compliant funds of any kind need to be much more accountable for what it is they're actually selling and how they will prove the accountability against those targets. As you rightly point out, the E, the S, and the G of ESG do measure completely different things. And so we're kind of lumping together, you know, CO2 emissions with forced labor and gender diversity and boardroom diversity and executive pay and anti-corruption and indeed shareholder engagement increasingly. And you clearly can't compare and contrast gender diversity and CO2 emissions, in my opinion. So yet we, we're reaching the stage where single ESG ratings are being handed out to corporations based upon this morass of, of different incompatible components. You know, should, might as well ask you this question now, do you think E, S and G should be split into entirely separate issues and rated separately? Absolutely. Uh, you know, to try and compare uh, gender diversity against the company's climate change performance is ridiculous. Uh, they're not fungible uh, and they should never be compared and added up and then creating uh, some sort of rating against that. Uh, it's just technically and scientifically unfeasible. Uh, and yet it's done all the time uh, because we tend to group all of these things under this very broad rubric, ESG, sustainability, corporate responsibility, fill in the blank of the, your favorite name. Um, uh, and so everybody wants to know who's, who's best at uh, this thing. Well, I think you have to be a little bit more specific about what we're actually talking about under the broad rubric of ESG. And that is something that is often overlooked. I mean, we talk about these uh, ratings and rankings. Uh, the Dow Jones Sustainability Index is probably the most well-known, widely used. And it specifically ranks companies as who's the most sustainable. Well, what does that actually mean? Uh, and I think that's, that's the area that I think is, uh, is long overdue for, for a, a little bit of scrutiny. So you, that's not the only source. You've got multiple sources, really, of this ESG data coming from lots of different vendors using different methodologies, and some of them even score the same company completely differently on the same issues. So how is an investor, and we haven't talked much about the investors, we've talked about companies, issuers, we've talked about uh, asset management, we haven't talked a lot about investors. How are they supposed to distinguish what's reliable information from what's, what's unreliable? Well, I think like any new area, you have a lot of interest and a lot of people flooding into the market. And so there's going to be uh, people that are just a bit ahead of their skis in terms of understanding and, uh, and perhaps even uh, making statements about this area. So it starts with education, understanding what the various issues are, why they matter. But the real answer to your question is uh, it goes back to accountability. Um, unfortunately, more than half of all of the ESG claims, uh, statements, uh, data that's published is unassured information. Uh, we wouldn't stand for that for financial disclosure. Uh, and, and we shouldn't stand for that for ESG disclosure that's being relied upon by investors that are putting their hard earned money on the line. And so I think assurance 
some sort of third party assurance based on some internationally recognized assurance standard uh, is absolutely essential to make this area to, to be reliable by investors. Well, we have, of course, seen the, the, the auditing firms trying to get into this area. They're never um, slow to, to identify something else where they can measure what's going on. But how reliable are they as, you know, you've called for third party data verification agents. How reliable do you think those auditing firms are? It's not as if they've, again, you know, covered themselves in glory um, in, in the tension they have between their consulting revenues and their audit revenues. And even if they find, you know, issues in a financial audit, they're more likely to sweep that under the carpet than they are to bring it to the attention of, of investors. I mean, are these the right people to get involved in this business or do we need a whole new class of, of third party verification agents? That's a great question. It reminds me, um, I, I got into a little sparring match with the uh, uh, then chair of the uh, IASB, the International Accounting Standards Board, Hans Hogevorst, in the Financial Times over this, where he was talking about ESG uh, rankings and ratings being uh, greenwash. And I was saying, well, it, it, I, I, as you've said, uh, the, the financial uh, assurance providers haven't exactly uh, covered themselves in glory. And there's many different uh, uh, examples of a different kind of green wash in that area. So uh, completely agree and understand. I, I think that the answer to your question really comes down to who else. Uh, there, there are professional assurance providers, notwithstanding the obvious exclusions and exceptions and problems that have occurred in financial disclosure and assurance. Uh, these people have you know, dedicated their careers, uh, put together standards of professional conduct and uh, assurance standards themselves. Uh, I don't really see much of an alternative here. The difference though, is that all of those people that are in the big four assurance providing firms, they're all trained in financial accounting. Uh, financial accounting is very, very different than let's say climate accounting or trying to understand uh, social compliance in a supply chain. And so there needs to be a great deal of education. I believe all of the big four, all of the big management consultants are quite involved in this and trying to bring in those people that are skilled and qualified and have dedicated a portion of their careers into this space. Uh, but I really don't see much of an alternative, to be honest with you, Dominic. I think that the, the, the assurance providers are moving quickly to answer the need. And I think that's where the, uh, the assurance will come from. What about the idea of the investors actually paying for this information themselves? One of the problems in audit is that the company management is really the people who have the relationship with, with the auditors. I mean, the investors own the company, but the, the investors are not paying directly. Would it change things if investors paid directly for ESG audits? Yeah, I, I think companies should maintain that responsibility. They're the ones, obviously, that are creating the data. They're the ones responsible for the reliability of the data. They should pay for the assurance of the data. Where in terms of um, financial contribution, I think assurance providers can help out and should help out is the exact same model that we see uh, with IFRS. And so the IFRS is uh, partially funded by uh, the assurance providing industry, which benefits from the standards of, uh, you know, the IFRS. So my feeling is as the IFRS moves into sustainability standard setting, which they are doing right now, as you know, uh, the assurance providing industry should support that effort. We're even seeing companies self-certifying their ESG performance. Uh, am I right to be, can I be cynical enough about that? Is that information completely valueless or is there something useful in it? 
uh, <clears throat> you, you know, a certain amount of cynicism is always healthy. Uh, in, the, in the case of uh, uh, self-assured information, I think even more cynicism is probably uh, uh, in, in line here. Um, <clears throat> however, there is, there is sort of a, a little bit of a check and balance. Uh, I think back to the early days of uh, sustainability claims, uh, back when uh, Nike had uh, sort of fought back uh, against some of the sweatshop allegations in their supply chain, and they were taken to court. Uh, there was a, a famous case called uh, the Caskey case, uh, where Nike was actually sued for the veracity of statements made in their sustainability report, and that was ultimately settled. But anytime uh, there is corporate speech, uh, the corporations are liable for the veracity of the underlying statements. Uh, that is true whether it's assured or not. And I think all companies need to be reminded of that fact. Mm -hmm. So we see in here endless calls for, for proper standards to be imposed in this area just to make the, the, the information produced to a certain template and then people can, can analysts can, can compare it properly. So I know this is a very, very complicated question, but can you give us a sense of what the current state of play is in ESG disclosure standards in Europe? Americas and Asia. I know in my own rather limited research, I discovered eight, no less than eight other initiatives on disclosure centers in addition to the GRI initiative, which, which you used to, to head. And so for an investor or an issuer, it's kind of pretty bewildering as to what exactly you should, you should be doing. So what, what, what is the state of play? And are you confident that we're going to get some kind of consolidation and rationalization of what's going on, or at least some merger of these various initiatives? I'll answer the last part first. I am very confident that um, convergence is on the way. And it was, uh, uh, in fact, the, the headline of my strategy when I was chief executive of GRI. It's absolutely nece uh, necessity that the world speaks with a global common language for ESG. We have a globalized economy. Uh, if ESG disclosure is going to be uh, a part of that economy, then it needs to have a global common language. Uh, the way I would look at this question, Dominic, is <clears throat> similar to how we looked at it for financial disclosure, <clears throat> pardon me, financial disclosure standards uh, about 20 years ago. In, in, um, in that case, in the early 2000s, uh, each country had its own financial disclosure regime and standards. Uh, uh, enter the IFRS. Uh, everyone got together and said we needed that global common standard. The IFRS was formed. And now most of the nations of the world use the IFRS standards uh, for financial disclosure. The exact same thing is happening here. Uh, we're seeing a, a, a convergence again under the, the header of IFRS towards sustainability standards that can be relied upon by investors. And that, that is a very important call out. Uh, and the first one that IFRS is developing is climate change because of course, uh, climate is a global crisis and has crossed over into the realm of financial, financially material risk. So I think that is actually happening. But what's happening around that is actually really important too. So first you have the independent standard setters, GRI being the, the most widely adopted. They're trying to work to come together simultaneously. Second of all, you have the European Commission and the European Union that is moving forward under their uh, previous non-financial reporting directive, the NFRD. This is being updated. 
And as it's being updated into the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive, or CSRD, uh, the European Union has said they're going to develop their own standards. And so what I'm very concerned about is that the IFRS and the European Union will develop yet more confusion in the space. And we don't need more confusion. We need consolidation. We need that global common language. Now that global common language, that, that standardization, what exactly were you looking to standardize here? Is it, is it the, the format in which information is disclosed? Is it the way that the data is collected? You know, at the moment we have asset managers cooking up their own questionnaires and sending them out to companies and saying, well, are you doing this? Are you doing that? Then you've got different scoring and weighting methods, different measures. What are we looking to standardize? What will be the, the, the IFRS for ESG? What should it really be focusing on in terms of what needs standardization? It's, it's really good. And I think the great question, I think we have to sort of dive into the, the three major areas of disclosure. One is uh, accounting procedures. In the US, we call this generally accepted accounting procedures for finance. Uh, we need something similar uh, for um, ES&G. Uh, the only ESG topic that really has uh, a depth of accounting procedures is climate, and it's the greenhouse gas protocol, which has been around for 20 years and is internationally accepted as the way we measure uh, greenhouse gas emissions. So it's very important that we get the accounting procedures right. How do we measure all of these ESG topics? That is very um, sketchy. Uh, except for greenhouse gases, uh, the maturity of those accounting procedures is all over the map. The second area is disclosure standards themselves. What actually needs to be disclosed? What are the, the common metrics? What are the common uh, non-quantitative or qualitative disclosures that need to be uh, disclosed by each company so that they are comparable across different industries? And the third area is the analytics, as we discussed before. So how do you take all of this information and in a credible way, uh, use that information to compare, contrast, rank and rate companies against one another? Those are the three areas that really need some sort of professional, standardized, globally recognized rigor applied to them. That's where the e IFRS and the EU need to unite their methodologies, I guess. Yeah. Now, as if the field wasn't crowded enough already, I noticed the other day that the International Organization of Securities Commissions had got involved in this. It was encouraging securities regulators in Europe and the SEC in the it's ESMA here in Europe and the SEC in, in the US to start regulating uh, ESG ratings. And again, a cynical side of me uh, says that, well, it's not like the bond rating agencies did a great job uh, in the run up to the great financial crisis of 2007-8. You know, what could possibly make us confident that it'll do a better job in this case? I mean, is this a good, is, is IOSCO getting involved in, you know, urging people to regulate these, these ratings a good idea or a bad idea or just doesn't matter? Well, look, along with disclosure accounting standards, disclosure standards and ranking and rating standards, we need to have mandates. Um, absolutely important that we don't leave uh, this up to companies to sort of choose their own adventure. Uh, we tried that before under the European Union non-financial reporting directive, where essentially that failed because it said, hey, you can disclose whatever you'd like. Uh, just, you know, pick some internationally recognized standard and, uh, you know, disclose something. 
Uh, well, you can understand why the results of that were sort of a dog's breakfast, right? No, no one really could understand it. It wasn't comparable. It wasn't reliable. And that's why the EU is having to redo that mandate. Uh, enter IOSCO. Um, they, have, they are the international association of all uh, capital market regulators. And they've said, look, with one third, one third of all assets under management now having some sort of ESG claim associated with it, we must take action. Uh, investors are clearly uh, relying on this information. So we have to have some sort of common, uh, let's say, uh, floor or minimum required disclosure standards and accountability standards across capital markets so we can, again, make free trade work, make our globalized economy work. Uh, how does it work? It has to have reliable information. Uh, so mandates are absolutely essential. I know that the SEC here in the US is considering mandates, uh, as are many other uh, capital market regulators across the world. Now, we've kind of assumed in our conversation so far, particularly in talking about the IFRS uh, plan, that actually having a single set of global standards is, is the right answer. Is there anything to be said for a, a period or even a kind of permanent uh, degree of competition between standards on the basis that you know the best methodology might elicit more information than the worst one? Yeah, no. Um, I, I think uh, when it comes to sustainability, there's, uh, there's always this question about quote-unquote materiality. Um, in, in the financial world, this is a, a, a fairly settled case of what is material. In the sustainability world, it's not, uh, because it comes to this issue of uh, whether um, an outside, quote, environmental issue is financially material to the company or whether a company's activities are material to the environment around it. So there's this converse definition of materiality. The European Union has said, hey, we're going to do both. Uh, if something's material to the company or material to the environment, we'll include that in our standard setting. The IFRS and other, uh, other uh, financially oriented standard setters and regulators have said, no, we're only going to look at what's material to companies. So clearly there is some competition already uh, between these different regimes. Uh, so, so that's the, the yes, there should be that competition, a healthy tension. The no is that we can't have fundamentally technically different ways of accounting and disclosing this information. It goes back to the point about the global common language. So even if, let's say the, the European Union decides to go well beyond uh, what the IFRS will do, and, and perhaps they should to protect all of us, to protect sustainability, the methods they use, the accounting procedures, the, the standards for disclosure should absolutely be coordinated uh, with one another so that we're not uh, stretched as companies trying to disclose this information with different ways of accounting. So you can have a common language, a common set of standards just applied with different degrees of, of intensity. And that I guess in itself provides a, a degree of competition. But I can see this rapidly gets quite complicated if you're an investor or an asset manager because you're allocating money either to a particular asset class or to a particular sector. So you're having to choose not just, I wanna be in mining and I want to be in banking, but actually I want to be in banking in, in the United States and, and mining in Australia rather than, than South Africa. How useful is 
uh, is the, the ESG data now and how useful do you think it will be once we've got this common language in helping uh, uh, investors and asset managers choose between asset classes and between, between companies? Obviously, the ESG risks of a bank are very different from the ESG risks of a, of a mining company. There'll be points where they meet because the bank lends money to the mining company, but it's a, it's a far from simple task to you know, make selections using even a standardized set of ESG criteria, isn't it? It is. And, and, you know, if we step back from the question a bit, I mean, investors always want more information. Companies always push back. Why do you need that information? Uh, but when it comes to ESG, uh, you know, the examples that you used in your question are, are exactly right. Uh, because, you know, mining conditions in uh, the developed world versus the developing world are incredibly different. And the issues that come up as potential financial risks to investors are incredibly different. Uh, investors want this information, they need this information. Uh, we've got example after example of the uh, both reputational and financial excursions and disasters that have occurred in mining fields in the de developing world. Uh, should investors have known that some of that was coming? Well, how would they know without some of the disclosures that we're discussing? Uh, so it's absolutely essential from an investor point of view to get that information. Uh, what is being debated right now and, and per our previous conversation is how much and to what uh, standard and what are the mandates. And this is going to be a debate that will be going on for many years from now. Uh, but the, the truth is that with one third of assets under management already claiming some sort of ESG compliance, this is now already crossed over into the mainstream of financial disclosure. I can see that the, the safety procedures of mining companies around the world are already just a, you know, a field in, the, in itself, I suppose, for deciding you know, the ESG credentials of, a, of an organization. You can imagine that independent experts would have to go in and attest to whether this mining company at this mine is following international best practices, and that becomes part of your, your assessment. So there's a risk here of just, as you said a minute ago, um, investors, asset managers always want more information. Is there not a risk they'll get absolutely buried uh, in information? Or are we now developing tools, I don't know, artificial intelligence that can enable this information to be sifted, particularly, I suppose, once it's standardized, be sifted more into more usable forms for asset managers and investors? Uh, this, is, this is a really active area right now because we've seen disaster after disaster that um, through you know, the, the 2020 vision that comes with hindsight, we, we should have been able to predict. Uh, a great example is BP's Deepwater Horizon excursion where we had you know, the world's largest oil spill uh, several years back. Um, you know, many analysts have gone through the data and said, well, there were indications uh, from BP's disclosures that there were several safety concerns. Uh, as we have more of, and more of this information now, because sustainability reporting is so prevalent, uh, we can go back and sort of, as you said, using uh, artificial intelligence and some of the cutting edge technologies that are available now, uh, sift through all of that data and say, really, where, uh, what, what indicators are predictive 
of future risks. What are the ones that are most important for investors to understand? So that we're not just uh, sort of throwing spaghetti on the wall and seeing what sticks, but having a much more uh, uh, targeted approach. And we need to, you, you did touch on this earlier, but perhaps we can tease a bit more out of it. We need to standardize the way in which the ESG performance of, of corporations is being uh, being measured or scored. You know, different providers could apply different methodologies, different criteria to how they derive these, these scores. Do, do you envisage a world in which there's going to be like a single reliable global standard thing. This is the measure of your E performance. That's the measure of your S performance. That's the measure of your, your G performance. Is that even a realistic thing to, to think about given the complexities here? I don't think so. I mean, I, I was trained as an environmental scientist. Like I said, I've been in this world uh, since before the world, the world had the term sustainability. And back then it was environmental science. And we had, you know, air, water, waste, and each one of those has its own subcategories. Uh, they're all disciplines in and of itself. Uh, and that's just the E portion. Later on in my career, I got involved with the uh, social compliance when I was with Apple. Uh, and, and that's also many different disciplines within it. You know, there will always be analysts that will try to simplify this complex information uh, and be able to sell that an analytic uh, mm -hmm. to an investor because it does simplify things. Technically, mm -hmm. it's incredibly difficult to combine these things. Uh, again, I think what investors are really looking for is the signal and the noise. Of all of this information, what's telling me that I have you know, outsized risk or not? And, and that's, I think, really where you know, the rubber meets the road in terms of these analytics. But technically speaking, no, it's, it's incredibly difficult to add these things up and come up with anything meaningful. Uh -huh. So there's a market for the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. So the answer is 42. <laughs> exactly. But, but it's meaningless, right? <laughs> exactly. Now, and I guess also every investor is going to be different. They're all going to have different ESG criteria, partly because of the people who run it, partly where they are for a whole variety of reasons. Um, how easy is it for them to, to bespoke their investments to meet their particular criteria? Is this purely a function of, of disclosure standards or is there, is there more to it than that? I think there's more to it than that. Uh, you know, in the financial space, you know, there's entire um, investment funds and investment managers that make their living out of pulling data uh, together and combining it in their own unique way, proprietary way that gives them some sort of an advantage. I think those investors are really seeing ESG as a, as a treasure trove of information that can add to their proprietary quantitative analytics that will give them a leg up in terms of predicting the future. I mean, obviously no one has a perfect crystal ball, but the more information you can add to your quantitative model, uh, sometimes the better off your analytics and predictive uh, uh, possibilities are. Talk a little bit about, about what this does to, to investor performance. Do we have data that, say, investor activism uh, actually improves the ESG performance of, of companies? There, there's lots of anecdotal evidence that it does, and lots of correlations between uh, ESG analytics and company performance. I'll give you my own sort of firsthand uh, reflection on this. In terms of activism, 
having been involved with probably more than a dozen ESG shareholder resolutions when I was with Intel and Apple and AMD, uh, there's no question that that has improved performance. And in many cases, we would meet with the activists, we would discuss their particular concerns, uh, we would make some change to a program uh, so that the re resolution would be withdrawn. And that has been time tested and proven over many years. Nowadays, you're seeing uh, resolutions that are actually passing with uh, invest institutional investors uh, supporting the activists. Uh, and that is also changing companies and I think ultimately for the better. But when you really take a step back from activism itself and say, does, does ESG improve performance overall? It's a much more tricky uh, conclusion. Uh, my own personal view on this is that companies that are good at managing environmental, social, and governance issues, that, that broad sweep of issues across uh, ESG, are better managed companies because they understand their value chain. They understand the implications of the management systems that they're running, and they have good systems to keep track of what's going on. So to me, that, that to me uh, is the overall answer. I'm glad you brought that up because I've attended a number of events recently, which asset managers of all different shapes and sizes have said, well, you know, the great news is that uh, ESG compliance doesn't damage your investment performance at all. And I was always thinking, well, how do you know that? Because we don't actually have reliable data yet for you to, able to, to be able to make those assertions. That's exactly right, but but there is data, right? So, so as I said before, if you're in the business of trying to predict the future, as most investors are, more data is better data. Uh, you, you just wanna have as much as you possibly can to, to get that sort of leg up on the competition. And ESG offers, again, a, a, a huge amount of additional information that, that investors and analysts can use. Worry that when we get all these uh, standard forms of disclosure in place, that we'll find out that there actually isn't enough ESG compliant assets to go round. That actually the the, the industry is in a much worse state than it appears with inadequate data. When we actually look at what's really going on, I think that's um, a near certainty at this point. Uh, you know, when when uh, when I saw that headline this week that one third of all assets are now claiming some sort of ESG compliance, I thought to myself, well, what is that? Uh, you know, so so you know, there's certainly a market demand, and uh, anytime there's a market demand, people move in to try and take advantage of that. What's coming is is the accountability backlash which will be, okay, so you've made some claim, show me the performance data that proves that claim is true. Uh, that's where we'll be talking. If we do this again next year, that'll be the dominant part of our conversa conversation. Well, I'm sure we will come back to this next year. It'll be an interesting area to follow, but uh, um, a, a question which arises a lot in the UK context, and I guess it, it has its analogs in, in other markets as well, is how should funds reconcile their ESG obligations with the fiduciary duty they have? And in the UK, it's a very explicit legal obligation on them. Their duty is to maximize the returns to their to their beneficiaries. And this, I think, is why asset managers are always assuring them oh, it doesn't do any damage to your, to your investment performance, even though we couldn't possibly know that. But how should you're a fund, maybe a pension fund, you've got this legal duty to make sure that these people have a great retirement 
and that might entail investing in companies which are not necessarily ESG compliant. How do they balance those two responsibilities? Yeah, so, you know, the only reason we're having this conversation is that sustainability issues or ESG issues have actually crossed over into the mainstream of uh, financial decision making because the, those issues are, in fact, material to the company's future. Uh, climate change is a great example, and we're seeing the uh, impacts of climate change on a real-time basis. And so investors are saying to themselves, this is a, a large uh, risk for my investment portfolio, or in some cases, even an opportunity, and I need to know more. Uh, that is, in fact, their fiduciary duty, is to look out for risks and opportunities in their portfolio companies so they can maximize returns for those pensioners that are relying on those returns. Uh, so that has not changed. All, all that has changed is that we're looking at the world very differently. As resources have become scarcer, as pollution has become prevalent, as the climate has started to heat up, uh, we know that these, these environmental issues and, and clearly social issues uh, can have serious implications on a company's financial future. Now, none of this disclosure is going to come for free. It isn't already. And once we have more rigorous standards, it's probably going to get more expensive to do, to do a better job. So there is a cost burden on companies that's going to eat into their, into their profits. Now, is that something which... which which we can defend simply because it's a, a necessary tax for destroying the planet. It's a, it's a repayment of the social costs they, they create, or is it, is it something else? How do, we, how do we justify laying this cost burden on corporations and on their investors and therefore on the standard of living of savers? What's the best argument? Yeah, I, I think with any new regulatory requirement, a cost benefit analysis is needed. And certainly there's been a lot written here in the United States about this. I testified on it in uh, 2019 at the House Finance Committee, and this will continue to be debated as it rightly should. Uh, anytime that we put in new mandates uh, that are underlied by international standards, we should have a darn good reason to do so, and that should be backed up by data. Um, and so, as I mentioned right at the very beginning of this discussion, uh, the world of ESG disclosure has started off as a voluntary enterprise, primarily to maximize corporate reputation around responsibility. All very important, all very good. But as it crosses over into the mandatory disclosure uh, realm with internationally recognized standards, we should be extremely careful uh, that only those issues that, that meet the cost-benefit ratio are the ones included into that arena of mandates. Uh, and clearly, climate is the first one uh, that most um, observers have said uh, must be mandated across the world based on international standards. And I think that's exactly where we're going. But as more and more issues sort of cross that Rubicon, they should be subject to that exact same test. Uh, it's okay to continue this voluntary world over here, but as it moves into mand mandatory disclosure, we absolutely must assure that the costs are outweighed by the benefits. So one last question for you on that point about making this passage from reputation management by corporations that are PR side of this to actually mandatory disclosure. To actually make that happen, in every jurisdiction on the planet requires more than just the 
IFRS agreeing standards and the EU agreeing to match its standards to, to the IFRS. We actually need regulators on the ground to lay obligations on corporations and lay obligations on asset managers and investors to you know, access, disclose, reveal the right meaningful information. Is that, is that part of the journey going to be in many ways the most difficult, translating the big macro idea down at the micro national level? Is that gonna be very difficult, do you think? You know, I would normally say yes, except that we're living in very exceptional times. Uh, you know, the, the Paris Climate Accord of 2015 is now um, in force and supported by every nation on the planet. Uh, you know, very rarely do you see, you know, that kind of unanimity of purpose. Uh, and so as we head into the COP26 meeting in Glasgow in November, I think what you're going to see, and you don't have to be a, a soothsayer to know this, uh, is that countries will come in with uh, very specific mandatory plans to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions, which will impact the companies doing business there. It's already starting to happen. We can see it. Uh, and it's absolutely needed given the, the current state of climate change. So, so that is happening. Uh, whether it extends beyond climate change is anyone's guess. Uh, we've seen various activities under diversity and inclusion, diversity and inclusion, for example, that have uh, risen up. Um, you know, social issues are starting to rise up. Uh, but again, crossing over into that world of mandatory disclosure, mandatory reductions, or or some sort of improvement scenario is a very difficult one, and even more difficult to do on a global basis. Morgan, thank you very much. It's been my great pleasure, Dominic, and I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Mm -hmm.